BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to talk to one of this year's new state lawmakers, someone who spent years advocating on behalf of the LGBTQ community, environmental causes, and more. Now he's on the inside up in Sacramento. That's right. We're thrilled to have Assemblymember Rick Sabur with us. He represents a Southern California district that includes big cities like Santa Monica, West Hollywood, and Beverly Hills. But first, we are going to talk to CalMatters reporter Ben Christopher about a few stories he's been working on. Hey, Ben. Hi. Thanks for coming in. So our listeners may have heard like on social media of this, this trend of Nepo babies. This kind of started, I think, in Hollywood and the entertainment space, this idea that there's a lot of nepotism. And you decided to uh, see how that applies to the state capitol. What'd you find? Yeah, I took a little uh, spin on that topic, looking at the state legislature and I found that uh, 10% of state lawmakers wow. are related uh, by blood to either current legislators or former Sitting right now, 10%. Sitting right now. And that number just kind of jumped out at me, and I wanted to look into sort of the, the why and the how of it. How is it that someone uh, decides to, to, to run for office to take their, their father's place or to join their sister or to join their husband? And what that means for state politics. And, and so there was a graph as part of your story that showed it going up over the years. It kind of goes up and down, but generally the trend is up. Like, what accounts for that? Because I, mean, I was thinking, like, term limits has something to do with that. There's just more seats opening up because people are forced out or into another, you know, another office of some kind. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good question. I'm not sure there's a, a single answer, but I think term limits has a lot to do with it. You see there's sort of a, a gradual inching up of the number of lawmakers in the legislature who have these sort of blood ties to current or former lawmakers uh, going up throughout the 20th century. But then you see it really kind of spike up after the 1990s when term limits were enacted in California. And I think that is part of it. You had a generation of lawmakers who were leaving and we're looking for people to take their place. And hey, maybe we look to our son or our brother or our cousin. Well, and obviously a lot of those people have exposure to politics, so it's not shocking they would be interested. They also have something that's like, you know, mana in politics, which is name ID. I'm curious, though, did you find anything nefarious or beneficial? Like, are, are these folks better equipped to do this job? Or is there something shady about, you know, a Brian Daly and a Megan Daly who are married and, and are serving in each house of the legislature? Yeah. Well, certainly if you talk to the legislators themselves, there's nothing shady about it. <laughs> um, and, Never. And, you, and yeah, exactly. And, and you could point to, to a lot of positives, you know, legitimately uh, with the introduction of term limits. 
you have some people argue that there was sort of a, a collapse of what you might call institutional memory. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there, there give the people, lobbyists a lot of power. Yeah, give the lobbyists a lot of power. Give staff a lot of power. Maybe journalists. Too. Maybe journalists a lot of power. <laughs> and so when uh, in comes the son of a former legislator, you know that they grew up with the knee of that lawmaker. They know how. Uh, the chamber works to a certain extent. And so it's a way to sort of transmit that that institutional knowledge. And it's not just the state legislature, we should say. Congress has its share of, uh, of family members. Um, Doris Matsui, who represents Sacramento in Congress, her husband died and uh, many, many years ago, Bob Matsui, and she's there. Lois Capps took the place of her husband mm-hmm. when he died. So, and, and, and here in San Francisco, now, yeah. and here in San Francisco, we've got Nancy Pelosi, who one of these days is going to not run for re-election. Her daughter, Christine, is rumored to be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in, in, in addition to all these other things, they kind of inherit this political infrastructure, consultants and donors and all that stuff. So it's kind of, it kind of makes sense. That's right. I mean, I, there are a lot of industries in which who you know matters, and certainly politics is one of them. Look at the Browns, right? Jerry mm-hmm. Brown, his sister, his father, um, all politicians, successful or otherwise. And um, I, I think there is, uh, you know, going back to this name ID aspect to it, especially at the legislative level where, you know, uh, people listening to this uh, notwithstanding, a lot of people don't know who their state lawmaker is. Totally. <laughs> you look at your ballot, you, there are a bunch of anonymous names, and then you see one and you think, oh yeah, uh, Cortezi, that, that sounds familiar. I think I've seen that before. And that often is enough to to, to make a make the difference. Name ID is Which worth is a lot a of money. Which is a little depressing. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to switch gears because the other thing you've been keeping an eye on is this oil special session. It has not been that special. The governor <laughs> called for it in the fall uh, amid just horrific soaring oil prices, right? And we had the first real hearing on this in the Senate a few weeks ago. A lot of skepticism, even from Democrats, about the idea of a penalty on uh, windfall profits. Um I want to push you on something else, though. You know, I thought the most interesting thing of the hearing was how little the experts know about why oil prices where are where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems as if the governor may not get his penalty. We'll see. That's but what did you think about that part of things? Like Siva Gunda, the energy commissioner uh, president, was basically saying, regardless of what you do on that, we need more information. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. If there was any kind of consensus at last month's hearing, it was the idea that it would be nice to know a little bit more about this market. You know, contrast with some of the other big energy markets in the state, electricity, certainly, even natural gas, there's just so much more understanding by regulators of how these markets work. The oil and gas market is seems to be a bit more of a black box. And so that's not maybe very satisfying for Newsom. He really wanted to come out swinging and stick it to big oil. This might result in just uh, more fact-finding, but that does seem to be uh, where the appetite is. Gas prices have come down a lot since this was a big issue. And, of course, Newsom was running for re-election at that time as well. Do you get the sense that the appetite for doing something is less and or fear of sort of the law of unintended consequences where, you know, you try to do something to fix one problem, then you create another problem. Yeah, I think the answer to both questions is yes. Uh, certainly the urgency is not there Certainly, where it was back in the fall when, when um, drivers were paying so much at the pump. And given all the uncertainty about how this market works, you heard a lot of skepticism, not just from Republicans, which you'd expect, but a lot of Democrats saying, well, what happens if we slap this 
new penalty or tax or whatever you want to call it on refiners. Would that do what we want it to do? And what would the unintended consequences be? I mean, the interesting thing is what Newsom and a lot of folks who are you know pushing this penalty would say is, it, it already had an effect. Just him saying it, you know, oil prices did drop pretty quickly after that. It's really hard to know whether right. or gas prices, I should say, oil prices were falling already when we were still seeing these wild fluctuations. But, you know, Scott, to me, this brings up a sort of pattern we've seen out of this governor, which dates back to really when he was mayor here, which is he has this proclivity for wide sweeping announcements, pronouncements, um, and he doesn't always check in with staff. We saw another one this week. <laughs> yeah, well, there was another one. Yeah, and that was Walgreens. He just uh, tweeted uh, on Monday that we're done doing business with Walgreens because they're not going to allow uh, distribution of the drug um, mefepristone, which mm-hmm. uh, induces abortion in states where that's restricted. They kind of caved. Some states where it's not totally restricted. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they caved into a lawsuit, several lawsuits, actually, but Republican attorneys general around the country are suing uh, to block the distribution of this drug. And, you know, the state health department had uh, health and human services had, I don't think, any knowledge that he was going to do this. They didn't know. They just kept referring us back to the governor's office. He did something similar with a tweet over guns and abortion with Texas than the state's U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So it does, it kind of makes you wonder if this is really the best way to govern, governing by tweet yeah. a little bit. <laughs> but I, I guess on the other hand, I mean, Ben, what do you think? Because some of this is just Newsom standing up and beating his chest the same way DeSantis does or, Ab- you know, Greg Abbott does, mm-hmm. governors of red states. Like, is from where you're sitting watching these, you know, bigger policy debates, do you think there's frustration with Newsom or do you think that some people are just glad to see him kind of fighting back? Well, probably a little bit of both. But, I, I you know, it's, as a journalist, it's not my role to feel <laughs> sympathy for his comms team. But no. especially after the, the, <laughs> the Walgreens tweet sent everyone in a flurry <laughs> figuring, well, wait, what does that mean? What about Medi-Cal? What about all these contracts that the state has? Uh, it does create a certain amount of confusion. On the other hand, we're talking about it. It gets his name uh, splashed across headlines, and it, it shows that he's sort of, you know, fighting the the culture war fight on the left. Yeah, and you know, to your point, Marisa, I think Republicans seem to have no qualms whatsoever about, uh, you know, kind of grandstanding on issues. Maybe the merits be damned, mm-hmm. and I do think that you know, Democrats, for better or worse, tend to be more policy in the policy weeds a little bit sometimes, and it re- it restricts them from right. doing that like, kind of thing. Like there wasn't. A- necessarily a lot of like deep thinking about the legality of some of these say like the don't say gay bill right like i mean mm-hmm. i think there's yeah a push a, to just do it in a lot of a, red states or the drag bill yeah. you know in tennessee i think that maybe even with the assumption that it's going to be struck yeah. down but at least they get their name out there they raise money off of it they stir up the base and you know all the rest of it and i do think and i've said this before that there is at least some flavor of the democratic party that's very happy to see someone like newsom coming out strong because we've seen a very different approach from someone say like Joe Biden historically, yeah. right? Um, all right. We actually have to take a short break. Ben, thank you so much for coming. Thanks in. so much. My pleasure. Ben Christopher of Cal Matters. Check out all his reporting at Cal Matters. We are going to take this short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Assemblymember Rick Zaburr. We spoke with him recently in our Sacramento Bureau. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I am Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are in our Sacramento Bureau today, and we are delighted to have with us a new member of the State Assembly, someone with a long history of activism on behalf of environmental issues, social justice, and the LGBTQ community. Rick Chavez-Zber represents the 51st Assembly District in Southern California, which includes a lot of cities, Santa Monica, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and more. Rick Assemblyman Spur, welcome to The Breakdown. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, we wanted to start, like we often do, with your childhood. I know you, I think, were born in U- Utah, but then moved to rural New Mexico. So no, I was born in, in Albuquerque. You, in and Albuquerque. Then and then we left for a period of time when I was really young, where my dad went to University of Utah for a graduate degree and Got then it. came out to China Lake. Um uh, and worked at the uh, the naval um, base out there, and then moved back to Albuquerque and to this farm community when I was um, first in second grade okay. to Albuquerque, and then fifth grade into the, to the farm community where my mom grew up. So, what do you remember about Albuquerque? Uh, I remember um, a lot. I remember a lot about the farm community okay. actually, uh, which is really where I was from the time I was in fifth grade till high school. Um, and you know, that was just a really interesting place to grow up is where my mom's family was from. We moved back, uh, because my mom wanted to take care of her parents as they were getting older. And so we moved to this farm that was about, maybe about a mile from my grandparents' farm where my, where my mom grew up. And what so did they you're grow? all were farming. Uh, so, um, our farm, the one that I grew up in, it was mostly alfalfa and oat pasture, and we had some garden vegetables. So we probably had a couple hundred acres. Um, my um, my grandfather um, had a dairy, so it was all mm. cattle um, and and other things. You know? Yeah, and what was I, mean, I can imagine growing up on a farm being a lot of fun, also potentially a lot of work. I mean, what was it like to be a kid there? A ton of work. I, I decided I never wanted to live on a farm as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> what did they have you doing? So, I mean, get up at, you know, five in the morning to basically, you know, make sure that the cattle had water and basically put hay over the fence so that they had something to eat for the day. And um, we had a, as I got older, because my dad and I used to do it when I was younger, and then the responsibility shifted over to me as I got older in the morning. And then we had a farmhand that helped in the afternoon because I couldn't get back in time to do what we needed to do in the afternoon and evenings. And my parents thought school was more important than 
than uh, what I was doing at the on the farm. So lucky you. I was, actually, I was, I was right? really uh, lucky. Yeah. Well, tell us about your mom. She sounds like a really interesting person. She must be about ninety eight. She's ninety. She turns ninety nine this sun, Saturday. Saturday. I know. Recently, you chose to take your mother's uh, maiden name mm-hmm. as as part of your last name, Chavez. Where uh, talk about that decision and like I don't know. Has it changed anything? Do you think people read you any differently now? I think they do because it was always um, before. People never realized that I was half Latino. Yeah. Um, and um, and I think people sort of understand that now. Um, but, you know, it was a big decision. My, my mom, you know, always used to basically say, you know, Rick, you know, remember you're a Chavez. She always tells all, <laughs> all the kids that because um, she's very proud of, you know, our heritage. And um, and I think it's just really uh, I mean, I, I took it as a, as a middle name, as a second middle name. And I, I think it just identifies, you know, what is true about um, about my upbringing. I mean, it's sort of in some ways the. The Chavez side was more influential in my upbringing than the Zabur side was. Yeah. Um, you know, we, you know, we grew up um, in this farm community with my mom's family all around, and you know, my mom was making the typical. You know, we uh, my my dad learned to appreciate even more New Mexico food and cuisine. I mean, I remember coming home from high school every day, and my mom had a big pot of red chili on the stove and beans, and that's what we ate every day with tortillas. I mean, it was um, it was a very um, a very New Mexican upbringing. Yeah. So you, uh, I think I read that you were accepted or offered a spot at West Point, yes. uh, the Army Academy there, and you decided not to go. Um, you know, going to Yale, not a bad, you know, backup plan B. Uh, but w- why, why did you decide not to go that route? Well, I never, I never wanted to go there. Um, so what happened was, I, you know, this little farm high sc- this farm community high school, I mean, it was a school that I think there may have been out of 200 and 250 graduates in my high school, there may have been, you know, eight to 10 of us that went to college at all. It really was not a college preparatory place. It's like most people stayed in the community, became farmers, um, and, you know, worked or had small businesses in the community. Um, so going to college was really not the typical thing that most kids did. And my high school guidance counselor, she sort of knew that I wanted to go to college and I, my visions were not going to an Ivy league school. It was really just going to college period. My, my dad was getting out of there. (laughs) Yeah. And my dad was really, he was a really big influence on that. And he had been a high school dropout himself. And actually when he dropped out of high school, ended up going to work in the steel mills in Chicago and was sort of a union steel worker. And during the Korean conflict, um, he enlisted in the Air Force. And because and when he went, it was because he had to help support his family. His family was really poor on the south side of Chicago. And when he um, when he you know, when he had the opportunities afforded by the GI Bill, he basically took those opportunities and went back and got his GED and went back to college and ultimately got a master's degree and a PhD and became a college professor. Um, so he was always, you know, school is the most important thing. Do well in school, all of that. Yeah. So you end up going to Yale and then Harvard Law. Mm-hmm. Not, not bad for a kid from a farm in Albuquerque. I'm curious, when did you come out? Um, coming out was not sort of the thing that happens like it does today because it was a slow process for me. Um, it was, uh, the first person I ever told that I was gay was my sister who passed away. And then it was a, you know, then I think it was close friends and then the rest of my family, I would sort of say it started when I was, um, 
the year after I got out of college. Um, so I would have been, what, 23. Um, and I think uh, my dad never knew that I was gay. Yeah. I mean, he passed away before I told him. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time, and then really when I was completely out was when I ran for Congress. Um, actually, it was before I ran for Congress. I did this event for Barbara Boxer um, when I was still a, uh, an associate at Latham and Watkins, um, mainly because at that point I was really focused on the AIDS crisis and the fact that the federal government was not doing anything. And so I became politically active, mainly because I was trying to make sure that people that were, um, you know, helping address the AIDS crisis were getting elected to um, to Congress and the Senate. And Barbara Boxer was someone that I. Um, you know, uh, we were going to do this little house party for her at my house, and it turned and it was in it was um, billed as an event by the gay and lesbian community at the time, um, and um, it just because because no one had ever I mean there had been no one that had ever embraced our community before this thing that was going to be you know a hundred people at my house turned into this eight I think it turned into eight or nine hundred people. Um, and we had to move it to the Hollywood Roosevelt wow. Hotel, and Mitch Costanza came. I mean, Barbara Boxer wasn't even coming to this event. This was just supposed to be a house party, um, like and, on her behalf yeah. to like raise. And then money. it just sort of got out all over the all over the place. And the folks in my, um, you know, I, I think there was some a newspaper that covered it, and some folks in my high school. Um, I mean, in Latham found out about it and it just became just very, very well known. That's one way to out yourself, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you were the first openly gay partner at Latham Watkins, right? I was the first openly gay lawyer and openly gay partner. Which is crazy now. Just because, you know, there's gay people in every profession. But was that, like, problematic in some way? I mean, was it it something they were proud of? It sounds like you were not outed, but, I mean, you, you came out, you know, because of something else you were doing, not because you decided you want to tell all your colleagues you were gay. Yeah, I got to say, you know, it was um, it was a time when when very few firms had openly gay lawyers and partners. Um, the thing I'll say about Latham is that they're a meritocracy, and they um, they responded to it in a way that I, in retrospect, you know, that both at the time and in retrospect, I'm very proud of. Yeah. So you went on to run for Congress in 1996. You mm-hmm. lost that. Spoiler yeah. alert, everyone. Um, and then for eight years, you were executive director of Equality California, which yeah. might be how a lot of people know your name, I think. How, yeah. I think I first talked to you. Can you just talk about that? I mean, to Scott's point, the the pace of LGBT rights and, and the changes that have happened over the last two decades is really quick, I think, when you look at sort of the long arc of history. I mean, what do you think about the most from those eight years? What are you most proud of the work you all did at at Equality California? I mean, I think um, when I came to Equality California, the the organization was really identified with marriage equality, which is a really important milestone for the community. But um, we had just earned that as a community. And I think a lot of folks then thought both some in our community and some outside of it that like the work was all done. Mm. And, um, you know, what we all know is that LGBTQ people, when you look at all of the you know measures of health and well-being, everything from rates of dropout in the school where LGBT kids are more 
four times more likely to drop out of school, or rates of homelessness where four out of ten homeless youth are LGBTQ, or rates of engagement with the criminal justice system, or rates of health care coverage, or rates of substance use. I mean, really, almost every measure of health and well-being, the LGBTQ community scores low. And if you're a member of our community who's also a member of a community of color or an immigrant or a person living with HIV or even a woman, you're at the very bottom. And so what we did is we basically, I think, helped the broader community and our community itself to understand that, you know, that we don't have full lived equality, even if we have certain civil rights protections. And that part of achieving that means having a very intersectional lens on how we look at things. And that means that advancing LGBTQ rights means that we actually have to look at labor rights and, um, and a good minimum wage and good working conditions and um, making sure that we're addressing gun violence and um, making sure that we're looking at health care coverage. And um, so the, proud thing, the thing that I'm proud about is that we really did, I think, um, transform how we looked at moving our community ahead uh, to looking at sort of the way that people live and the things we needed to do to support our community achieve what we call full lived equality. You know, you, you mentioned we talked about your run for Congress in 1996 against Steve Horn, what we would now call a moderate Republican, I guess. Um, and, you know, just recently, Robert Garcia, the mayor, openly gay, Latino mayor of Long Beach, got elected to, to that area uh, in Congress. It seems to be on a fast track to leadership uh, in yeah. Congress and a rising star in the party. We have, you know, openly gay folks representing parts of the Inland Empire, red parts of Riverside County. What do you, you know, what do you make of that? I think uh, I think people understand that you know LGBTQ people were that were people and we basically you know uh, uh, face the same kinds of challenges that everyone else does and we have the same interests that everyone else does um, and um, and frankly um, you know I think some of it also too is the fact that you know the LGBTQ community we've spent a lot of time really building leadership within the community making sure that we're supporting people at you know lower levels and helping them uh learn how to be good public servants and um and then the public you know as you mentioned at the at the opening of the show i think the way people think about our community is really different than it was when i ran you know in 1996 um i mean if when i ran that year every single article about my race started out with you know rick Zaber, an openly gay man mm-hmm. comma Blah, 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 blah. I mean, that was not I don't think there was a single article about my race uh, other than maybe in the LGBTQ press, um, but article that was generally in my race where that where, you know, that was uh, incidental. I don't know. I think the LGBTQ press likes to call that out, too, actually. They do. They, <laughs> yeah. they, they do. And they'll do it. But, you know, the L.A. Times, the, no, the other totally, press in yeah. the district, I mean, that was not the key notable. You think thing. It was a liability for you then. Back in 96? No, actually, I think it was um, back in those days, because it was so novel, I actually think it gave me a bit of a better chance than it might have had I not been gay, because it was just, there was so much national attention on that race at the time. Um, and um, But I do think that um, it is something that um, is a challenge and an obstacle that many candidates still have to overcome. Um, when you look at Todd Gloria's race when he was running for... Uh, for mayor of San Diego, you still had people using, 
you know, really homophobic tropes against him based on some, you know, mischaracterizations of bills that he voted for that were sponsored by Equality California here in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Um, And we still have folks that, um, you know, that mischaracterize our bills. And, you know, there was an article about me that was in the Washington Beacon um, just uh, a few weeks ago that was basically uh, characterizing a bill that I am sponsoring this year that is about helping teachers understand how to identify and provide support for LGBTQ kids in the schools was characterized as a bill that I was trying to help teachers help kids get sex change operations without right. their parents' support. Yeah. Um, well, that's, I mean, it is. It's like the, there's a new sort of wave of this grooming, civil rights, yeah. right, mm. with around the attacks on trans kids, the yeah. sort of whole grooming trope. Um, so... Why run again? I know your sister, Jackie, who you mentioned, who who passed away of ALS, encouraged you to take this on again. Um, You know, it's hard to run for office. Why did you want to run for the assembly? And and what do you, yeah, what do you want to accomplish? Well, so, yeah, my sister was really the person who, you know, encouraged me to do it. I mean, she passed away in 2020, September, after a couple-year battle with ALS. And she, you know, turned to me one day, about probably about nine months before she passed away, and she said, you know, Rick, I'm looking at my life, and I have a lot of regrets about the things that I didn't do. And she said, you know, when I look at you, you were supposed to do something in public service. And um, she said, I, you know, it's not too late for you. You're in your 60s. It's not too late. I hope you will think about figuring out, you know, you don't have – all the time in the world, but you've got enough time to have an impact. Well, we're going to, we got to, we got to wrap up here, but I do want to ask, you mentioned your children. I know you have a son and I think twin daughters. Um, So uh, twins, twins, a boy and a girl, and then a, and then a daughter who's in college. Okay. What do they think about all of this? And what, I mean, what advice have they given you? So they think different things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One, one of my daughters is really, really, uh, actually, I think both of the twins are really into the fact that, um, you know, lots of questions about what I do every week. Um, they're very politically um, focused. Um, you know, the, the twins were the two that right after Trump was elected came home one day. And when I came home one day, they basically asked why we weren't protesting that weekend. <laughs> basically, So we uh, we said, do you want to go protest? And they said, yes, we wanted to go protest. And then they they. They created these signs about Trump, which I won't describe what they said because it's not appropriate for the radio show. But and I had to tell them that the that um, that we still had to respect the president and that those the signs weren't all that appropriate. And now I look back at it and think that they may have they been were more, ahead of the that, curve. That they they may have been more right about things than <laughs> than I knew at the time. But and then my my uh, my other daughter is actually really I think really proud. She's actually um, in college now and is a theater kid. Just graduated from Loxa, the uh, high school for the arts downtown and um, is very artistic but often college in her first year so that's great great. well assemblyman rick chavisburg thank you so much for coming in yeah thank you for having me it's really nice to see you both and that's going to do it for this edition of political breakdown we are a production of kqed public radio our engineer is jim bennett and our producer is guy marzarati i'm scott schaefer find more of kqed's politics coverage by subscribing to our political breakdown newsletter you'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.